Good day, everybody. We are now into our third webcast of the day on a topic that um, is near and dear to our hearts. Um, we are calling this the 2020 Future Proofing Award session. Um, this is the start of a five-month process to define who in the world out there, brands, companies, organizations, are poised best to um, take advantage of the future. And in this discussion, we have truly a global panel of experts that have come together to talk about business models, ecosystems, talent, and transformation. Um, we've had two very um, eloquent and uh, you know, quite insightful discussions that we've had earlier today. I don't think this will be any different. I'm looking at a, a beautiful set of erudite uh, and very educated panelists that are chomping at the bit to get going on this topic. So as always, this is our 10th episode of season one, and I've done all of these with my illustrious co-founder, Andrea Cates. Say hi, Andrea. Hey, good to see everybody. And we would be nothing without Joanne, who ringleads everybody and sends you out panelist links and troubleshoots and does all the, uh, the spade work that um, we just can't do ourselves. So um, this is uh, kind of our template for today. Um, we'll probably go for about an hour. And if we're gonna award a future-proofing award, we probably should define, well, what is future-proofing? Because um, although it exists as a term out there in the world, I think people have different understandings of it. We've kind of tried to simplify it. People that are trying to embrace trends and actually you know, build for a faster, bolder, simpler, friendlier future, um, certainly the tagline behind our new book is called The Future Beyond Innovation. We think that's what future-proofing is. And really, at the end of the day, it's, it's um, companies that are really impressive doing remarkable things, either because they're growing a lot, they're building a lot of value, or they're creating impact that we've noticed. And um, yeah, there's some synonyms here, but I think we'll, we'll identify at least 12 companies in our discussion today within each one of these four sections. Business models, ecosystems, talent and transformation and um, certainly these are big topic areas this is our first um swatch this is the pre-holiday version i guess where some of the experts are going to chime in and officially nominate who they think two or three companies are we're going to open this up to everybody so um anybody that has a stake in the future which i think we all do can nominate people online uh in january um for uh, future proofing awards. So if you have a great personal business uh, client, whatever experience with um, an organization that you think is head and shoulders above everybody else and is well poised for the future, you can nominate them. And here is our great panel. And Andrew, do you want to um, introduce our panel? Well, we're excited because we have four people on the panel and the first one is Greg Witt. And what we, we have a lot of things to say about everybody, but we did win the bet today that someone would be in a hat and that would be Greg. So we've already made some money on the webcast. One of the things that's great about Greg is that he says about himself that he glues people together to make magic. We've had some experience working, on, working together and that's all true. What he wouldn't tell us, although you can look him up, is that he comes from a background of being a professional skateboarder. Some people think that's an oxymoron, but uh, Greg has leverage that into incredible expertise and insight about youth marketing. And so he's a really savvy guy who understands the present and the future and what's going on below an age group that many of us aren't familiar with. So uh, that's going to, that's exciting. And Jonathan Hofberg is going to talk about ecosystems and his expertise is UX. You, he's really an expert in enterprise user experience and has worked with the biggies like GE, Accenture, Deloitte, Adobe, Ford, eBay Roche, we've worked together and he's uh, one of those rare breeds that understands not just 
what it is, what UX is, but how to bring it to scale and how to make it all work. And he's also a polymath. And so we're, we're talking about generalists versus specialists. And we would say that Jonathan is the true Renaissance guy with uh, secret powers in all things musical as well. So we sometimes crank that out of him. So Nina Fountain is gonna talk about talent. There's a lot uh, that she brings to the table, including an accent. We'll let you guess whether it's from New Zealand or Australia when she starts talking. She works in both places. And she's a works, workplace strategist in, and works with transforming teams. What we love about her too is she's also worked with the Deloitte's of the world, the Australian government, et cetera. But the notion is that it blends the idea of how you prepare a workforce to be future ready. So it's right in our wheelhouse. And I love that Friedmeier, who, are you speaking French or English today? Uh, I'll do English. English, we'll do English. It'll, it'll uh, easier, yeah. yeah, we could do both. He could do both. Uh, but one of, one of the things that I love about him is he describes himself as a gearhead, which means he actually knows how things work. And in the early days, he built one of the first e-commerce solutions for a, a big grocery chain and has also leveraged that insight of actually building something into a strategic approach to let retailers figure out how to build digital strategies. So a lot of people say, oh, digital transformation, very few people have actually done it. So uh, he does it, he shares it, and he is one of, I thought he was cool until he told me he calls himself a gearhead. So that's our panel for today. And the format of our discussion, we've asked our panelists to come to the table with a, a little bit of homework. Um, hopefully, um, they're ambitious enough to tell us uh, why their category is so important to the future, the one that they're representing. Two to three companies that are great in it. Um, since we're all global or regional in perspective, I, I love when we can actually share something that may be different outside of your standard Silicon Valley, New York, or London. And then maybe what we can tease out of other uh, examples in terms of what might be reapplied to other leaders that are listening to this webcast. So uh, with no further ado, let's get right into it. Um, I wanna talk business models with Greg. And I, I must tell you, Greg, we're gonna geek out for the next little bit because I've spent a ton of time thinking about business models and I know you're really good at it too. Um, I just find the world at large, like I don't know if we've run out of ideas, but I think it's, um, configuring what you have is becoming just as important as just, um, you know, what your next new idea or new product is. So um, I guess, how do we want to enter the discussion? Why are business models so important to the future, Greg? I mean, like without a business model, you just, you're just spitting into the wind. Um, you know, it's one thing to have an idea. It's one thing to, to think that you, you know, want to, you want to create content or you, you want to, you know, produce a product even, even if you're really clear about a certain type of product that you have or, or a certain type of service that you have. But if you don't actually know how that, you know, like what are the, the not, not just focusing on monetization, but if you're not like very clear about how that is, is gonna monetize and how that's gonna be successful um, in, in multiple years to come, not just, not just eyeballs, not just engagement, which is a lot of my world because I represent, of course, like youth market um, and brands that are you know trying to reach young people so you know like without a business model you don't have a foundation you know it's like you don't have a, a, a structure to the home you don't have a you know there's no architecture there's not you know you're gonna fail you're gonna fail or you're gonna get incredibly lucky which is I see this I see companies yeah. get incredibly lucky and then they stumble into a business model you know eventually by force which is you know just completely stupid um, 
uh, as far as the way to start, you know, unless it happens uh, as, a, as a pivot, you know, and, and it becomes, you know, I mean, having a business model is integral to your success. I mean, there's my quick, short answer. I love your two different things. Is it like this intended thing where we planned on doing it or we lucked into something and then we played it back? It's almost like a game of golf sometimes where business models look so easy looking back at the tee box versus looking forward to the green, right? So yeah. use a bad I think a lot of, if you don't mind me just hopping in, but um, what your, your little rant there made me think a lot about Web 1.0, right? Where these companies would show up on the back of a napkin um, you know, waxing poetic about uh, the next big thing. And then um, they would figure out the business model on the way down. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And, you know, in a more mature venture backed uh, entrepreneurial world, that doesn't fly as well anymore, but. Yeah, exactly. Like those, cause you know, obviously like a lot of apps come my way, our team's way. And, and, and it was interesting to see that shift from let's just, just drive eyeballs, just drive downloads for us. And we're like, even then, even then, like in the last two years, five years, 10 years, it was like, okay, you know, so, okay, we're going to drive these downloads and no, we just need the numbers. We just need the people in here. And that's just not what, you know, investors are investing in. That's just not, uh, thankfully, that's just not the way it's it not is. Enough anymore. You know? Yeah. Now, uh, we said, hey, come to the table with two or three different companies that you think, wow, um, they've either are moving to a business model, they've added a business model, or um, you know, they've invented a new business model um, that may have some legs in the future. Any, any candidate companies that you're looking at, Greg, or that you think? Yeah, um, I made some notes. You know, I, 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 like you, I, I'm, I'm a geek at this. Uh, at the gentleman on the bottom of my screen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Three. Yeah, Farid, I'm a geek when it comes to this. So I made all kinds of notes. I, look, who has a business model that, that's incredibly effective, that's been, been uh, developed, been honed in, that's maintained cultural relevance for various times, 1966 will be Vans. Uh, Vans, is, which is VF Corporation, is doing an incredible job on, on so many different levels in, in terms of you know, how their business model operates um, and then is able to scale on such a, a global level with, with VF Corporation and, and all the, the sub-brands that, that fall under it. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of their business model and models, which are, are, are all very unique. And then I'm, I made a note of, you know, how are, are, are some companies like modifying their business model, like Foot Locker, is, is, is mod and I, I won't go too, too deep in names of companies, but like Foot Locker is doing a lot to sort of not pivot, but it, it make their business model more relevant to not just young consumers, but I think just to shoppable consumers in general, uh, online, social, digital, whatever. I hate using that word digital, sorry. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Um, sorry, everyone. These are all my colleagues that I'm talking to. Um, and then, then I, I'm also just sort of impressed by Bang, Bang Energy just, just like jumped into an absolute uh, saturated, you know, a market with really no room and Bang Energy's gaining market share. I find it really interesting. I've been studying that, like how they do that. And I'll name one last one because everyone wants to know about TikTok and it's the buzz and, and I don't want to be 
like, oh my gosh, TikTok, you know, I don't want to be that guy, but, but it is a, a, a big piece of, of my market. So I think that that's a business model that I think is, is interesting to talk about. I'm, I'm going to step back and let the steering, my, the steering people steer me somewhere in this. But well, I'll, that's, I'll that's where my starting points are. I'll ask a follow-up question because it's interesting. I love the fact that you chose Foot Locker. Uh, I'm not as into Foot Locker uh, athletic retail as maybe I should be, but and then there was like a few other uh, brands that would be probably newer or like certainly TikTok. I know is new, and and my my suspicion is Bang Energy, unless you tell me differently, is no, more, right. more of a startupy type of thing. Um, so, question on business models. Um, we've had a little bit of this discussion earlier today. You know. Uh, who wins? Who can build a better business model? Is it easier to build a business model from scratch and be a startup and do it and just like be completely clear on that? Or are there some inherent advantages of a corporation that allows them to make some mistakes and still create some new business models that, that may work? Um, do you have a, a sensibility around that, Greg? I do. Yeah, I'm highly opinionated. Uh, it's Please. all about the leadership. It's all about the leadership. It's the leadership because you have Slack that came in and just had really great vision, really great leadership, and, and just was able to come in and just, you know, I mean, I'll just say it, like just decimate teams on Microsoft and just say, that's like the same features. What's the deal? It's the same product, man. It almost is the same product. The UI person styly disagreeing with me. I understand that. And I agree. I agree with the UX plus or UI UX. But, but the idea is, is there's leadership that can come in with a startup and a startup has an opportunity to do it right from the beginning, if, especially if they have had a lot of experience with, with companies who, who have done it right. But, but I will say, um, if I was to answer sort of with, with a, a, you know, on the plank or with a gun to my head, I would, I would probably put my bet on the flexible established corporation. Because it, like anything, whether, whether it's distribution or, or, or the business model, like when you, when you talk about vans and, and you look at the, the, the corporate structure of VF Corporation, they understand how to develop and, and guide business models. They understand how to govern the individual brand business models and what works and what doesn't work. They have that vision, that, that foresight, as you've said, to, to see what works and what doesn't work. So they're, they're not guessing. Now they have to maintain relevance and they definitely need to make sure that they don't fall uh, rest on their laurels, but but they definitely have I'd say the leg up because they've been there and done that. And I think to you know second guess experience. If I was going to wedge uh, my bets on experience versus a startup, it's always going to be on on the corporation that's maintained flexibility and has great leadership as well. And it's interesting. You you deal with a a, a more of a youthful class of brands where. I look at a business model and I go, well, there's the way you produce it, the way you pull it all together, the way you charge money for it, or uh, the way you treat your customers. Is there, is there observations you have around how those moving levers move in your world or just globally for everybody? Like, is there- Yeah, I, think I don't think they're any different in my world, um, you know, how it skews to, to youth or how it skews to, to older demographics necessarily. At the end of the day, you need a subscriber uh, you either have a parent, you know, what's different in my world is that I'm often working with a, a, a dual or three different demographic groups at once where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm shifting influence on a parent versus 
you know, the, the bottom up or the top down with, with the younger person, depending if it's kids, tweens or teens. I have like four dip dem demographics, tweens, teens, young adults, kids as well sometimes. So um, that sort of situation is different. But I think the business model of uh, is this something where it's a, a freemium? Is this a, a paid subscription? Is this a product that's e-commerce or a product that you have to go to brick and mortar retail for? Uh, or if this is just pure entertainment and we just, you know, need engagement, we need relation, you know, we need to be building relationships. I, I mean, I think all the pieces have to work in an integrated fashion. Um, that's just good business. But that's my perspective. Maybe I'm getting older. Maybe that's what's happening. Don't say older. No, you're not. It's wiser, better. Um, uh, this one may be a quickie, but, um, you know, uh, I like shoes. Everybody loves shoes. You've, you've talked about a couple of people that sell different types of shoes. When is it that I can have the subscription economy turn my shoes into, I don't want a lot of shoes in my closet. So can I just have something that every month there's like a new set of shoes that show up on my doorstep by subscription and then I can send them back the next month? Is this, is this part of my world soon? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like it's slipping because it's already in existence. Like it already exists. I'm, I'm, I'm slipping on that. Um, like, look, you're gonna, inevitably, you're just gonna be able to 3D print any, exactly what you want for your shoe. So it'll be in the, not solely, but solely. <laughs> I didn't even do that on purpose. Oh man, uh, you know what? that's I, dad humor if I've ever heard of it before. <laughs> Look, you guys, what people don't know watching this is that you started off with like Dr. Seussisms and then it just like, it put something in my head. <laughs> you're gonna be, right. you're gonna be- I want you to hold all of your dad humor for later on. We're gonna come back to actually business models. We're gonna, uh, Turn over to Jonathan Hoffberg, who uh, we're going to talk about ecosystems, which is kind of related to business models, but I think it's, you know, partnerships, collaborations, groups, and consortia of businesses coming together to actually build stuff. Um, and I'm curious, well, I mean, same question for you, Jonathan, like, why are ecosystems so important? And I know you spend a lot of time in healthcare, so, um, you know, you can either take that lens or just generally, why are they so important to the future? Well, you know, nobody does anything by themselves anymore. Um, and um, least of all in healthcare, actually, which is an area that I've been spending a lot of time uh, working and thinking about lately. Um, and actually the way I interpreted the ecosystem question was really more about uh, ecosystems of delivery, because actually that is one of the fundamental um, areas of information, uh, of innovation and transformation in the healthcare space. Because, um, you know, the current way of delivering uh, certainly critical care in the United States is through uh, the hospital. And the hospital is an entity that is over 100 years old in fundamental design. And um, it's a very expensive way of uh, delivering value in that space because you have everything on tap. It's designed to be able to uh, offer any service at any time to any patient who is within its uh, physical boundaries. But um, there, uh, that comes at a great cost. So, you know, the typical overhead for a major tertiary care hospital like uh, Stanford here, uh, not far from where I live, is about 10x 
over the cost of the actual services provided. So that's an incredible overhead. And that uh, translates into the kinds of uh, skyrocketing, skyrocketing costs that we're seeing here in the United States for healthcare that are driving our premiums through the roof, that uh, are raising the hue and cry uh, over uh, a nationalized health plan and, and so forth. Um, now by comparison, a local hospital, uh, that uh, like you know Alta Bates, which is right down the street, um, has an overhead of more like six x, um, which is better than ten. But hey, you know most um, most companies uh, like in Greg's space, for instance, could not run on a six x overhead. It's just not tenable. It's only because of the incredibly distorted distorted system of healthcare reimbursement that this is even that that uh, every hospital in the United States doesn't actually go out of business. But um, the future, the way out of this, is to develop new ecosystems for the delivery of healthcare that are built on um, some concepts that we've been hearing about for a long time. Um, the concept of precision medicine. Um, and the concept of personalized medicine for precisely diagnosing uh, and then uh, effectively and predictably treating a wider and wider degree of ailments in specialized centers that do only one thing. And um, an example of that is a company uh, called Shoulders. Um, that is um, a um, specialty clinic that in four days will operate on you for a hernia. And they can do so for a fraction of the cost of what a general service hospital uh, will do. And um, they have a very high success rate. They're, they're one of the best in the country at it. Um, there are other companies that are, I think, a little more um, focused on the diagnostic and the, the prevention um, of illness before uh, it even presents. And those companies, um, I think, are also uh, really very much leading the way. Um, two companies that I want to draw attention to in each of those areas are Health Nucleus, which is a, a subsidiary of Craig Venter's uh, Human Longevity, Inc. You might recognize uh, Venter's name because he um, led uh, the team that sequenced the human genome uh, the, 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 for the first time uh, in 2001 at a cost of $100 million. Well, today you can sequence a genome um, for around $1,000. So that um, creates a whole bunch of opportunities to really be very precise about uh, diagnosis and therefore um, it's going to open up a whole set of opportunities for treatment. Um, another uh, pioneer in this area is uh, uh, Leroy Hood's, uh, Leroy Hood's uh, P4 Medicine Institute up in Seattle. Um, I saw Leroy speak about 10 years ago uh, in Los Angeles at the company where um, I was a director of product and he um, was inspirational even then. He was, he was one of the guys that uh, developed the original gene sequencer. So he's a real pioneer in uh, genomics. And um, so his um, institute up in Seattle um, does uh, scans and snapshots and then works directly with their patients to analyze 
um, patients before they get sick and help them develop uh, a better understanding of their own health and um, habits which will ensure uh, long, healthy, disease-free life. And uh, so I think that's, that's sort of where the, um, the ecosystem um, trends are going. There's going to be more and more um, healthcare outlets like P4 Medical Institute, like Health Nucleus, like uh, Shoulders for delivering healthcare, that it's going to be done more efficiently and with a higher degree of success and aimed at, at prevention and uh, precise diagnosis and treatment. I know um, uh, those are, I mean, I think you've adroitly answered why is it important and also some examples of companies. You've mentioned them and I think your entry point was cost. You know, costs are crazy in terms of the states. I'm, I'm a dumb Canadian, yeah. so we don't see our healthcare bills, but that notwithstanding, um, are there other reasons why you would build ecosystems um, beyond merely cost, um, either in the healthcare space or just uh, writ large? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I'll stick to healthcare because I'm on a roll here. Um, but <laughs> the, you know, the ability to deliver um, value locally. Um, as opposed to having to go to a local hospital or, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, one of the the ivory towers, uh, like Stanford or Cleveland Clinic or Mass General, um, is um, that you're more likely to go more frequently, and you can afford to go, and um, you can develop a relationship with your doctor that, and and with a team of people that's that whose goal is to keep you well, as opposed to people who are really looking, you know, like there to provide, a, you know, a, an expensive intervention uh, in the case of, um, you know, something gone, gone and terribly wrong. So I think there's a, there's a lot of value there in terms of um, increasing uh, longevity, increasing the quality of life uh, of people, um, you know, living with chronic conditions and, and just, um, you know, as we, as we all get older, it's, um, you know, there's always a threat to quality of life that comes along with that. And so, um, you know, we can live longer, healthier lives um, by uh, remaking our healthcare system to be more proactive and to um, deliver uh, more value to more people in, in a cost-effective way. It's interesting. I'm going to make this really radical leap from your medical examples of cost containment and um, localization of your health. And, and I'll just mention maybe another ecosystem that isn't in healthcare, um, Uber Eats, right? Uh, I don't know if you have used the service before, but you know, I, I think it's been fairly restricted before in terms of how many places can you actually get stuff delivered to you on time um, you know, without a, a infrastructural uh, burden that a local restaurant may pay for. And I think Uber Eats is maybe an example, successful or not. I think some people view Uber as the evil empire, but um, you know, certainly, at least in my neighborhood, I can probably have access to about 400 restaurants. Whereas even five years ago, the network of restaurants that I might, you know, have a, a realistic option of getting something from at 10 o'clock on a Friday night might be much smaller. So um, making the bridge between healthcare and whatever, maybe there's, I don't know, uh, your opinion, Jonathan, if there's if that metaphor applies. Well, you know, I think 
various forms of telemedicine are going to become um, more uh, important in uh, the delivery ecosystem. I know that Kaiser has been um, experimenting in the lab um, with the idea of an autonomous ambulance that shows up to um, whisk an ailing, perhaps, uh, you know, person who might be having a heart attack or maybe they don't know um, to the hospital and then administer um, a, you know, autonomously um, a series of interventions that uh, are designed to stabilize the patient, understand their state, um, open up a line of communication to the hospital so that when they get there, um, you know, they have a greater chance of surviving. There's, um, and, you know, so this, I, I think, um, you know, the Uber model is colliding with the healthcare model. And there's a bunch of um, different experiments going on around the country um, to test it in, in uh, various use cases. Mm, That's the first thing that comes to mind. But there's, uh, you know, there's, of course, other ways to, uh, to slice that as well. All right, uh, this is almost half time. So we've covered two from Greg and Jonathan's standpoint in terms of business models ecosystems. Um, my master of synthesis is uh, Andrew Kate. So uh, what have you heard so far, Andrew, that has uh, shaken well, the ground? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just say one thing, which is I think that all of the examples that are very industry specific also, because I'm always thinking cross industry, obviously, also make me think about um, the effect of both let's say what you just talked about an ecosystem, I'm thinking about what's happening in food because the, the big issue of food, of course, is you know, all the way down to the farming, the production, the vertical, you know, how the food issue is gonna happen. But I also look at the ecosystem of delivery because this, I, I hate to tell you who it is because it's not popular person, but there are ghost kitchens that are the equivalent of commissaries that are kind of the next generation that we're seeing. So it used to be, you know, 18 different restaurants in your neighborhood, depending on where you live, could all have one central delivery function. So in terms of the structure and that ecosystem, those were the relationships. But now there's this new movement that I'm sure uh, people have heard of where there's these commissaries where one central kitchen has a bunch of veggies and different spice profiles. And this is the Thai spice profile and this is the Mediterranean and this is the vegan and whatever. So one central kitchen in a given local neighborhood can have, you know, the central kitchen, you don't need those restaurants. So let's see what happens to local restaurants when first, you know, people don't come in because they didn't need to because they had Uber Eats or whoever delivering. But what happens to a restaurant if their recipes have been kind of cloned into a central kitchen that can be noodles, five different spice profiles? So I'm just seeing ecosystem as a, as a really interesting ecosystem and business model is like the next frontier in terms of innovation and future proofing. I, I think it's super exciting. All right. Uh, Halftime intermission over. We're going to move to talent and transformation. And maybe this is a demarcation point because they think business models and ecosystems is kind of like how we plan things. Talent and transformation oftentimes is kind of like, this is where the rubber hits the road. Like, can we achieve these things that we want to because the people will let us or technology and process will let us. So I'm here with Nina. We're going to talk about talent. Um, um, serve it up. Give me your best sermon on the Mount about why talent will be so important over the next 10 years. Nina. Brilliant. I think there isn't anything that's more important, but that's um, that's doing my job, isn't it? To say that talent is the most is the most key thing. And we, we were talking about the future of work and 
uh, as part of the future-proofing picture, the future of work is, uh, it is, we are changing in our understanding of that. So two years ago, people were saying that the jobs would be decimated. Now we understand that there'll be a much greater shake-up of jobs with a whole lot of new jobs created. And, and I think what's happening is that um, when we get increased complexity, we also have uh, a, new, a new set of problems that arises. So um, we are in a state where we're getting increased complexity and, and it's possible and we don't know exactly what the future is going to hold, but it is possible that in fact, people's jobs will be, um, will, be, will be bigger and there'll be more problems. There'll actually be, you know, there'll be more need for people. Um, apart from that, we've got the rise in the need for humanity. So if robots and AI can do what they do without um, being kind of feeling beings, then humans who can feel and think um, have a unique um, place and a unique role to play. So there's a real important um, thinking there for, for leaders to actually look at the role of talent. I think that talent is actually going to become more important um, and you know, that, with, that there is a shift in the way that people are engaging with business, um, a shift in expectations due to networking and um, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer economy, the rise of ecosystems, massive transformations in, in business models and the things that we're talking about, meaning that jobs will be redefined and not just, um, you know, not just shifted, but shaken up. And so we're talking about transformation that's ongoing and consistent and, um, and speeding up, um, all driven by technology change and converging ecosystems. So we've really got a lot of, um, a, a lot that we need to um, kind of wrap our heads around. And I think we're in a stage where we actually need to wrap our hearts around it as well and, and um, help people to be more resilient, to be, um, to actually be able to, you know, be excited about change, to be adaptable in the face of change. So there are some really significant challenges for leaders to get their heads around. So uh, certainly you've made a pretty clairvoyant call, call there in terms of their, the importance of talents. Um, I can argue both sides of this in my head or in terms of the optimism that I should feel about talent over the next 10 years. Um, you know, I, I would say 60, 40, 40, 60 articles written about, nope, it's going to be a great future and we're going to have boundless uh, singularity, productivity, wondrous things that we'll, we could have never invented before. And it's, life's going to be great. It's going to be like, Star Trek, or it's going to be dark mirror and um, it's all going to go bad. And we can't find jobs. And um, I know, well, I'll ask it as a question. Where do you side on that one, Nina? I think we're all wrong and we're all right. So um, we're just thinking about the future in the, in the, in the wrong way. And we can learn that from um, from companies like Shell and others who've used foresighting to say that we need to actually understand not, the future in a linear perspective, thinking that the future is going to be an extension of what we currently know, but actually thinking about it in terms of a variety of different scenarios and the way that things could play out. And that's, that enables us to plan for the best and the worst and options in between. And I think that's where people are, um, are not preparing themselves is that they're looking to understand the future as um, as you would understand a net, you know, a show on Netflix, right? That you turn it on and you think, I know the characters, I know the way this is going to play out, I know the kind of journey that this that this producers and director is taking me on, I know what to expect when I turn that channel on. So they're kind of looking for 
a Netflix style um, understanding and explanation of the future. And in fact, um, you know, the future could be that program or this program or this program or this program. There could be a whole lot of different ways that it could turn out. Um, and we really need to expand our thinking around what's possible. Such a great product idea though, like a Netflix of the future. I, I love that idea though, even though I think you don't want that. So um, um, you've come to the table with a couple of different companies that you think are um, vanguards for this movement. Um, which, uh, which ones are these? I have so um, looked at this through the lens of what are the things that, that companies really need to do in the, in the talent arena to prepare for the future. And, um, and what can we learn from what they're doing now to take us into, into the future and what we already know about that. So the first one is, um, is Microsoft. So the advantage of a big name like that is we can um, more easily follow what they're doing and learn from their success. And the reason I chose them is because they have really focused on culture. Um, so they were voted best company culture this year, um, voted across 10 million ratings. And um, as we know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And um, that's a phrase made famous by Peter Drucker. And I think what he meant there is that a really powerful culture is a sure route to organizational success, um, even more than, than powerful strategy. So of course, strategy is critical, but culture is really a super driver. And um, defining that, you know, what does, what does culture actually look like? Um, people have defined it in lots of different ways, but um, one thing we, we know we can say is that it's not one action or one conversation or one symbol or one system, but at some point, once those things become patterns and become repeated um, and become consistent, then you're starting to create a new normal. And that's when you have a culture and cu culture constantly flexes. So some people influence the culture, others kind of take and receive the culture. Um, but but we still have the capacity to shape it. And that's what, that's what Microsoft is actively doing. Um, and I think we can see how the market's rewarding them. They're the second most valuable company um, on the planet at the moment. And I think, yeah, what an example, I saw an example up close of how they were doing culture really well um, in that they were, um, so when I, um, one of my roles was, leading the, um, the Australian program around uh, telework, it was called at the time. So working from home um, was to double the number of people working from home. We had Microsoft on a, on a stakeholder, um, a kind of industry panel. And they told us then that um, their journey to activity-based working uh, was six years in the making. So instead of seeing flexibility as a tack-on or a process or a policy that they could just kind of write down on paper and, and, then, it would, and then it would be, um, they recognised that there was a culture of flexibility that they were going for. And they actually really took the time to, to develop that. Um, so, yeah, I think that I know that companies that um, invest in their culture going forward are going to be the ones that, um, that have got more of that, um, that ability to, to work within, um, yeah, I guess where, where I see it is when people are working flexibly, they need to be able to work within the culture um, because they're making autonomous decisions. So the culture kind of tells them um, how we do things around here. What is the way that we do things? So, and flexibility is absolutely a, a super trend at the moment. Andrew is going to be very happy that you picked Microsoft. Uh, she is a bit of a fangirl of Microsoft as a culture 
um, winning type of organization. Um, any other, uh, did you pick another company that uh, maybe is smaller than Microsoft, is slightly smaller? Yes, um, I could, so I've actually got two others. Okay. Um, so if we got space for two, um, they're kind of, they decrease in size. So the next one is, um, is actually Qantas and I chose them because of their focus on the, the employee experience. So Qantas is, is Australia's national airline. They've been voted three out of four years running as Australia's most attractive employer. Um, and so what they're doing, I think, has a, has a lesson for, for all of us going forward in the future of work. And actually they've recognised that um, the competition for the best talent is extremely fierce. Um, and that's, I think, going to become more and more the case as we look to, to get the best people in their areas. You know, we, in the future of work, we want people who are, who are super learners, who are ready to give their all, um, who are internally driven. They don't work for a paycheck, but for a mission and a calling. Um, and those people do have basic expectations from their, their employer. Like, you know, they just see as hygiene factors. They want a positive culture. They want rewards and recognition. They want continual feedback. They want learning and development opportunities. They want flexibility um, and a clear purpose. And so what Qantas is doing really well and in and, and, um, employees are voting that they are is they're matching um, their great brand with um, the reality of the experience for employers so they they do a number of things that they have an onboarding software um, that creates a great premium experience from the start they have a people experience strategy so they're really not leaving it to chance what the experience is that that people are having in the business so you've got a culture example, you've got an employee experience example. Did you, did you take it into a different avenue on your third one? Yes. Yeah, so um, with a company called Kazoo, so they're based in South Carolina. Um, they're a much smaller company, 58 employees. Um, and yes, yeah, so the reason I chose them is that they are doing change management really well. And I think for me, this really links back to the way that people are engaging with, um, with business in a different way, have, have different expectations around what a company or a business is gonna offer them. Um, and change management, if we're talking about transformation, change management has to be um, one of the, the key areas that we look at because it's really quite well known in, in change management circles that most change is really ineffective. So there are a variety of different pieces of research that have found that only about one third of the change um, initiatives that are started are not successful. And so, you know, if we, if we think about an era of rapid and increasingly accelerating transformation, uh, we can't accept change that is, is, not, um, is not successful. So I think that so the, there's a number of reasons why change isn't, but one of them is that um, the command and control model is really fading and people want more involvement. In fact, um, there is evidence that people are not change resistant. They're resistant to change that has been forced on them without having any involvement or without having any, um, you know, any, any idea of how to shape it. So, so what they're doing at Kazoo uh, is that they're, they're actually really actively promoting getting managers involved in the process. Um, and they're, yeah, they, they've, their CEOs talked about how that really accelerates buy-in and, and um, helps to tackle that skepticism. So, yeah, I think that's an example of, of a company that's recognizing that 
um, there is a there is a change to to change and how we do change, um, and that's something I've I've seen to be extremely successful when you involve people, the the success rate just um, really goes up. And I've had had people say, I don't know what we did that made this work so well. Um, and and it's not it's really you know it seems almost counterintuitive. It seems like a, a kind of losing strategy to to involve people, but in fact it's it's a winning strategy, um, and it's what we need to do more of. I love the mix of them. I love the mix of the size of the companies, the geography of the companies. Those are three really good ones, and I think there's some takeaways for people as well. We're going to um, put a button up for a second. We're going to go to your kissing cousin to talent, which is you know transformation, which has a process and a talent and a technology angle to it. Um, and then we'll hopefully coalesce on all of our discussions um, after Fareed goes on transformation. Fareed, you know the plumbing of what works digitally inside companies. Um, why is transformation going to be so important for the future? And you may be muted. I was, I'm not anymore. That's so, uh, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so yeah, so tr transformation is, is important. And, and there's so many ways that we can look at this and you and I have talked about this many, many times. Um, so I, I, I decided to take kind of a very local approach, um, go small, go local and, and maybe kind of shine a different light on, on this, uh, by looking at companies that may not be well known outside of Quebec and, and Montreal. Wonderful. And kind of highlight the challenges that existing businesses have because they have to transform an existing model and they very often have to break uh, things in order to, to get there. Um, so um, the, the, the issues that I, that I see day in, day out with my clients is that we, we talk about the flashy things around Uber Eats and, and all these, these model Airbnb and all that. But if you're, if you're a distributor, if you're a retailer, the big, big challenge is, is thinking outside the box without killing the box that you're in right now. So I kind of took three examples, and, and the first one is a really small, they have, it's a, a bike shop that's in the area called Primo Velo, they're online. What's it called I, again? Primo Velo. Okay. Uh, uh, Primo, I guess, Velo. Um, and six years ago, they just had two boutiques, no real POS, no real cash register that's interconnect, no ERP, no. And that's the reality for most businesses in most countries. I've been to France, they are, of course, the US, I assume Australia is the same thing. And they, they have this huge ramp up to make to get their systems to be ready. And, and this guy kind of came in and said, if I don't do something, my store is going to disappear because people are going to buy their, buy their bike parts online. So I'll be that destination. And, and we went through all this transformation of, I got to get a new ARPN, new POS, train my people, change this, change that. And it took three, four years. And that's a long time to support, you know, 
outputting money before you actually are able to sell online credibly. And now, like five or six years after, he opened a third store. He didn't close the other two stores, he, but now he's got a fourth store, which is his on, online store. He's the largest Trek uh, bike uh, seller in Canada, and he's growing like mad because he made that investment. And, and I'm going back to that. You're small. You've, th there's some basic requirement that you have to do in order to be able to transform your business. So you got to change and it's extremely expensive, even though the, the amounts may not be huge by Microsoft or Qantas comparison, but, but they're, they're, they're significant nevertheless, and they get no support for the government. They get no funding, they get no incubator, they get no venture capital, they, they just have to bootstrap it themselves. Well, so, it's funny, even, even the big consultancies don't really write about them, right? Because they're, they're not potential clients. So uh, my, my, my point yeah. exactly is that, that there's, there's this 98% of all the businesses are small and medium businesses in, in, in numbers. And, and these guys are, are really kind of banging their head on the wall to say, what do we need to do? The, sec the second example is we always, I'm, I'm in mostly retail distribution manufacturing, um, you know, uh, uh, industries. Um, we talk a lot about the front office or the front end or, or how to, you know, get the new store experience. But what, what I realize is transformation has to be back office as well. Transformation has to be, um, you know, changing your, your, your warehouse, making sure that your distribution changes because you're, we're on the cusp of, of being able to have self-driving cars and trucks. And, and that's going to be a huge impact on the, on the logistics and supply chain and distribution. So you got to be prepared to, to change and to get those, those, those uh, sensors and those RFID tags and, and, and those robots in the warehouse. And there's a company called Lumen, Lumen Electric that has um, invested a tremendous amount. They're a distributor. And they've invested a tremendous amount in order to robotize their warehouse and distribution center. I could have picked a number of other examples, way larger. Uh, Andrew, you talk about grocery. Grocery is Canada next. I mean, I've been doing that for 25 years. But, the, 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 you know, huge volume, uh, um, low margins, they need robots, they need automation. Ocado in the UK has been bringing this robots. But I wanted to highlight Lumen because they're small, again, they're relatively small, they may be, you know, a couple hundred millions in, in sales, but the, the, the company had to invest and, and kind of try to compete and because otherwise they're just going to not be able to, to follow. Why did they robotize uh, everything? I, I could imagine a couple of things. What was the driving reason? Um, uh, I didn't work with them specifically, but it, but definitely efficiency and and uh, reducing the cost, uh, uh, allowing them to be more nimble. And and there's a huge human impact. I think it was Nina that was talking about the the, the human resources aspect. Companies are struggling to hire people in, in their stores or in, in their warehouse that, that, that were lacking resources. So you need robots in order to, to just be able to 
do the work, which is which is what I I assume is 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 definitely a driver for for many. Take us home. What was your uh, what was the third company you identified? The third company is a company called South Shore Furniture. Uh, if you know Wayfair, um, they're yep. kind kind of like that. They sell furniture, but they also manufacture furniture. And and the story that they're in Quebec City, they're you know they have five um, manufacturing plants, uh, one in Quebec, uh, two in the U.S., two in Mexico. They're, they're really big and they, they, they sell, they used to sell through distributors, right? And then in 2007, 2008, the, the bottom fell on them and, and, and their market disappeared overnight. And they said, hey, let's try this, this Amazon marketplace, right? I think the internet may be a thing. And, and they realized that, that they could actually sell furniture online. And, and now they went from selling maybe 2% online and 98% through distributors through selling 95% online um, through distributors, right? So, so a lot of their stuff, you're going to buy on Amazon.com or Wayfair or other uh, distributor or marketplaces. But they had to do a transformation and say, if I can, you know, could I be a, could I sell directly? To the to the consumer, and I see a lot of that without disintermediating, without killing you know your distributors. Can can I have a, a, a direct to consumer path? And when they do that, then they have to transform because they have to learn a new trade. They have to learn to sell to a customer. And 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 the first time that I came into their their office to to do work, they brought me into the Sarah room, and Sarah is their persona and they and they break it down into Sarah Jane and Sarah Joe and whatever so they have different personas they're all named Sarah and they brought me into that room and they they've mapped their persona and their the customer journey and they've done a tremendous job at mapping it for a manufacturer but now they have to kind of think outside the box and think as a retailer and that's different skills different processes different tools different different a lot of things. So that's another way that transformation kind of creeps in. Is I love the uh, the range of ideas and and to to go back to Greg's earlier point earlier in terms of so the, these companies transformed. Did they? And it sounds like at least in the last case they changed to a different business model. Did they transform first and then found a business model, or had they planned on changing their business model and then they realized transformation was the, it, the it's agile. I mean, agile, we've been doing that in software development for 20 years. Agile has become the modus operandi of their business. They've been doing that for 10 years. They have long-term goals, long-term strategy, and then they have quarterly uh, nice. goals and objectives. So going back to, to, to an article or blog post that you and Andrea put together this week about being a generalist or a specialist, um, um, I, I go with you, you, you gotta be, you gotta have a vision when you transform. I want to go in that direction. And then you, so that's the generalist approach. If you, if you want, and then you you gotta execute on a quarter to quarter, you know, inching your way forward because yep. there, there's no way you can big bang the whole thing. Okay, we're we're like in the fourth quarter, if uh, to use a um, 
I know it's an American football term, Nina, so I apologize, but uh, I'm going to use it anyway. We're in the fourth quarter of our discussion here. Um, I thought I'd just, uh, we haven't heard from uh, Greg for a while, just maybe 30 seconds in terms of what you've heard today and, and kind of your worldview now in terms of what the future holds. I just, like, the future holds Im immediacy. The expectation is immediacy. Um, you, you need to deliver everything, whatever it is that you, you have, your service, your product has to happen fast. It needs to be, uh, you know, there needs to be a relationship building component. You know, you, you need to uh, create a sense of belonging. Uh, you need to do everything faster and cheaper and, and, uh, and, and be more, more interesting all at the same time. So, it, man, so no compromise. It, it does not get easier. I must, well, say, I must say, man, I was hoping you were going to say it's going to get easier. No, it's not. It's going to get a lot harder. Um, oh, but, but all the, a lot of the tools are, are gelling a little bit better. So it's, it's, we're in the wild west in, in many ways, as far as platforms, uh, tools, sort of everything. It's still a little bit wild. Nothing, obviously nothing seamlessly interconnected, but, um, uh, but there's a, maybe a little bit more, uh, it's just terrible to even say stability, but there, there, there's a little bit of, of stability. Like social platforms are such a key to, to the, the business that, that I'm in that I want to say that they're a, a little bit more stable. But anyways, I, I, just, I learned a lot of just thinking about the ecosystems, just thinking about you know, everything that you're saying, talent being important. I really, uh, the, the, Nina, you, you talking about like the, the heart and humanity that's a, a big part of, of everything that we do here at Engage Youth and, and, and just driving that home. I, I, that's something I really got out of this as one. Very cool. Um, I love how in each one of our webcasts today, it seems like there's been a genuine kind of coming together of, of kind of conclusions. So Jonathan, um, your view from the mountain? Yeah, um, you know, just reflecting uh, what Greg was just saying a moment ago, um, you know, faster, cheaper, on demand. Um, the trends in uh, medicine, which I was talking about earlier, uh, towards uh, precision of diagnosis and personalization of care um, are very consistent with um, these trends that Greg is observing and uh, certainly that we're seeing in other, um, other uh, quadrants of the digital landscape. Very cool. Nina? I think for me, um, hearing some of the, the examples from health, um, from retail, from manufacturing, even the, the restaurants example, it's um, good evidence of the, the level of change and shake up that, that we need to expect. So I think that's, that's a real take home for me is that there's a, there's a, I think everyone wants to kind of get comfortable, get our heads around what the future is going to hold. And, and in fact, um, we've kind of got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think it's very individual too, right? Back to our future of work stuff. It's uh, I've worked in large mm -hmm. companies before where it's like, yeah, but that's Joe's job down the hallway. And it's like, no, it's not Joe's job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, that's a siloed mentality that's not going to be a very uh, successful approach going forward. Certainly not good for innovation. And Fareed, what's your, uh, what's your consensus thought? 
Um, I, I think uh, think globally, act locally is is what I tried to to put forward. So so that that should should be clear. There are success stories locally in smaller organizations, and conversely, smaller organizations shouldn't be afraid to try to transform. But uh, listening to all the others is is very often transformation is is presented as a technology driven. Um, uh, thing and and it's very often true that that technology enables a lot of these transformations, but they usually fail because processes don't adapt or organization fail to adapt their processes, or uh, organizations fail to support their employees in that transformation, and um, I think all the others have have covered that beautifully, you, you got to consider the people process technology when you do transformation. All right. So we're all becoming generalists. We all need to know everything to, to get to that faster, cheaper, better world. Andrea, um, consensus view. My consensus view is a, a short statement, which is I love that the non-sexy aspects of transformation are actually going to be on the front of our imaginations. I mean, I think that this notion of back office is really interesting I, uh, that Freed was talking about. I think that the notion of doc in the pocket kinds of things that Jonathan was talking about, like, you know, the shift of, you know, in the U.S., because I, I also look at healthcare in India, Africa, you know, China, Japan, all the places that we, that we go to, and, you know, the, such different models that certainly there's going to be some innovation across many borders there. I think that this notion of heart, I, I, I'm going to echo um, the, the reminder that Nina spoke about because, and Sean and I believe that it's, it's people, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, business and all this, and employees, all these crazy words, but at the end of the day, it's people and getting our hearts around this is pretty damn important. Mm -hmm. And then I think, Greg, um, your no the notion of whether the existing business model, you know, whether it, the kind of Greg versus Fareed, not that you were arguing, but, you know, is it is it the existing companies retooling themselves because they need to and they can and being brave and having leadership that's going to kind of be the model of the future or it might be both and, is it is it these kind of a startup that's coming out at, without with a kind of fresh, uh, no holds barred mindset that's going to really bring us forward? And uh, I'm I came away from this one really very positive. And and as I said, I always love the nerdy back office innovation things because they don't get any ink. You know, like we never read about that stuff. But that there's a whole lot of potential there. So I thought the panel was amazing really incredibly uh, thought-provoking. Well, let's see if I can bring this home in 60 seconds. So I'll either talk fast or go through quickly. Um, uh, first of all, thank you, panelists. There are many people out there that say, oh, I don't know if I should talk about this topic or whatever, maybe it's out of my, you did not. You stepped up to the plate. Um, you did it with a lot of intelligence and uh, we now have 12 companies 12 or 13 companies that we're now gonna put on our nominee list for the Future Proofing Awards based on your input. So thank you. Um, you can have, uh, I guess the, as the process goes, we're gonna have the expert nominations this month. Uh, we're gonna open it up to the general public that they can nominate their own and provide reasons why. We'll have judges uh, and we're gonna interview some of the candidate companies and declare winners in April. So look forward to that over the next four months. We have declared what we're gonna focus on research-wise in Future Proofing Next. Here are the four. I won't gonna out, I'm not gonna outline all of them, but certainly myself and Nina, 
and a group uh, posse of 30 others are looking at the future of work from a number of different angles. And that's going to be a real focus of ours over the next five, five months. Um, next slide, Andrea. We're writing a book. I, I, I still hear people write books uh, and read books. So um, we're writing a book. It's due out February 10th. Um, I hope is you'll like it, read it, and tell your friends. That's all. Uh, we're also building a global network of champions. Perhaps the four that we're on today might be interested in becoming part of our round table, um, our little global guild that hopefully tackles some of these big challenges together and uh, has some fun while we do it. We've had two other webcasts today. They're all going to be at Future Proofing now on our website over the next couple of days. So um, a lot of different insights to tear through. And we've got two for January that we've already set out, um, second and fourth week of January. Those are topics. And the last slide, I think, is there a last slide? There might not nope, be. Nope, that's the last slide. All right. Um, well, thank you, everybody. Uh, and this is our last webcast before the holidays. So enjoy yourselves. Um, have fun. Don't have too much fun. Are, wait, are we, are we doing the Christmas sing-along now? Uh, do you have a song in mind? No, please, I was just, I was just, just trying to shock people. <laughs> um, but enjoy. And uh, when it turns January 1, we're into a new decade. So uh, we'll be all about the future, um, certainly based on milestones. If not, we got to live there, too. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.